Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You're just a horrible person. I think he just like looks for this high in life that he just wasn't getting through the military, through marriages, through kids, through drugs, through drinking. And he just kept pushing and pushing until he got it. I just hope he's not out there hurting anybody else or hurting anybody else's family the way he did mine. He's done enough damage. It's October 24th, 2016. 22-year-old Katie Boyder Blauvelt is finishing her shift at a pet store in her hometown of Simpsonville, South Carolina. As she leaves the store, her cell phone rings. It's her 18-year-old niece asking Katie to hang out. They make plans to meet in one hour, but Katie never arrives. Calls and text messages to Katie's phone go unanswered. Her family has no idea where she could be. Two days later, Katie is found stabbed to death in the basement of an abandoned house on the outskirts of town. Five years later, her suspected killer remains at large, and authorities need your help to bring him to justice. I'm Steve French, and this is Unsolved Mysteries, Recruiter on the Run. Katie had turned 22 in August, and then she was murdered in October, so she was just over 22 years old. Patricia Piver is Katie's mother. I'd always been a devoted mom. I mean, when I was young, first thing I kept saying about having kids, I only want a daughter, because I didn't think I could handle boys. <laughs> and I was blessed with three daughters, Brandy, Katie, and Taylor. Katie was the middle one. She was like a free spirit a great friend to everybody. Just very sweet, very kind. She just had a heart of gold and would help anybody. Katie was short with brown hair. She had dark hair like me. It always curled out in front of her ears. She called it elephant ears because my hair does it too. When we put our hair up and don't mess with it all day, we'll get elephant ears is what she said. Cheyenne Davenport is Katie's niece. They were close in age and developed a special bond growing up together. Katie and I were four years and one week apart, both born in August. We were always really close. We always had similar interests and we were the closest in age to each other. 
in the family. So that made us a lot closer. She loved to read books and play with animals. She loved to be outside. She was pretty much to herself, unless she knew you well, then she could be loud and funny, just like everybody else. It's early 2015, and Katie is 21 years old. She's living at home in Simpsonville, working alongside Cheyenne in a strip mall sandwich shop. Katie has been considering joining the Navy, but another branch of the military recently caught her eye. One of her regular customers is a handsome 27-year-old Army recruiter named John Blofeld. Katie worked at Firehouse Subs. She'd been there for a while, and John was an Army recruiter, and his office was right next door to Firehouse Subs. So I guess at lunch, you know, Kim and the guys would go next door, and he saw Katie, and Katie saw him, and they'd to strike up a conversation because they saw each other quite a few times during the week. She thought he was good looking, which he, he was attractive. And Katie, I guess, was infatuated with him and they started talking more and hanging out more. And he had a way of getting girls to like him, knowing what to say and what to do. When John came around, it just seemed like he was a super easygoing guy and like he was very understanding and he was just fun to hang out with and that was the same thing for her. I think a big part of it had to do with the military. We are a military family. Her stepdad was in the military. Our grandparents were in the military. We have aunts and uncles who were in the military. I guess that attracted her a little bit. It was something familiar. Katie developed strong feelings for John very quickly. She has never had a serious boyfriend before and finds the attention from a handsome older man exciting. Katie didn't really date at all in high school. It was all hanging out with her friends. She even went to the prom by herself. She got a friend to drive her there and then pick her up and bring her home. But she went by herself. She didn't have any guys. Probably as long as she dated anybody was a week. I remember the first time she told me she thought she loved him. We were sitting on the trampoline in the backyard at my mom's house. And I remember thinking in my head, I was like, wow, that was really fast. Even at a young age, I didn't think that she knew what she was talking about. It was her first big relationship, so you know everybody falls pretty hard the first time anyways. Katie's newfound relationship quickly becomes serious. She brings John home to meet her parents, but her mother immediately has concerns. I had grown up with military men because my dad was in the Navy. My brother was in the Navy. My other brother was in the Air Force. And my first impressions of John was not very good. There's an air about military men. They're very polite, very respectful. And John was not like that. He was very standoffish and wouldn't hardly talk to you at all, wouldn't even look you in the eye. And I thought that was just strange. There are other red flags as well. The Facebook page John uses with Katie is not under his last name. He says he doesn't want his army superiors to find out about the relationship. The military has rules against soldiers dating when they're already married. We knew he was married as soon as we met him because he had his ring tattooed on his ring finger. He had a black band tattooed. So of course you're gonna ask, you know, he can't take that off. He said that they were already separated and that they were working towards a divorce. And so that 
he wasn't really like in a committed relationship is how he put it. I had mentioned to her about how he wasn't very open or respectful and she just said that was his way. I said, he's married. She said, yeah, well, he's going to get divorced and he promised me we'll be together and all this. She was infatuated with him and she wanted to be with him. And Katie, like some kids, you know, they, they want their way and the more you discourage them, the less they want to tell you. And since she knew I didn't prove of them, she just didn't bother telling me. In spite of Patricia's concerns, Katie continues her romance with John. She doesn't discuss their relationship with her mother again until she has a big announcement to make. She just came to me one day and said, I'm moving in with John. I wasn't too sure about that. I didn't think they had dated long enough. I thought they should have dated longer, really got to know each other. But she told me that they were getting an apartment together. And I mean, she was an adult by then, so I really couldn't tell her no. I just told her I wasn't happy with it. Katie moves into an apartment with John against her mother's wishes. It isn't long before Cheyenne sees signs of trouble in the relationship. They fought a lot, and they always put me in the middle of their arguments. So, you know, one of them would call me and tell me what was going on and say, will you come get him or her or whatever, you know, just trying to get me to help them break it up. I didn't know at that point how much arguing was normal in a relationship. I thought they just argued a lot. Katie didn't really tell me anything about the relationship. I heard more from her sister, Brandy. He was an alcoholic, so when he would get overly drunk or whatever, he would get mean. I know there were a few times Brandy told me that Katie had come to her house to stay because John was getting mean and yelling at her. She would go to Brandy's and Katie would stay with her until he calmed down and then eventually he'd tell her, oh, I love you, I want you back, I'll behave, whatever, and Katie would go back to him and then it would just happen again later. The pattern continues until September 2015 when Katie announces a big career change. She's decided to continue her family's tradition of military service, but not in the way they had expected. She had talked to my husband because he was in the Navy. And of course, he would tell her, you know, the Navy's the best way to go and explain why and all this. So she was more set on joining the Navy. But then when she got with John, all of a sudden, Katie's like, oh, I joined the Army today. And we're like, where did that come from? We thought you plan on joining the Navy. She said, well, John talked to me about this and this and said the Army would be the best way to go and stuff. So she ended up joining the Army, which surprised us. Katie soon heads off to basic training and embraces her new challenge. While surprised by her daughter's sudden announcement, Patricia hopes the Army might give Katie's life some direction and help her to envision a future that doesn't involve John. I got a letter from her and she was talking about how much fun it was, especially the runs they would have to do with the pack on their back and stuff like that. How she was really enjoying it. And John would even, believe it or not, uh, text me pictures or what she was doing every now and then. That she would call him and tell him what they were doing that day or whatever. And how, of course, she was scared and nervous. And he would give her encouragement. And she was loving it. But Katie's military career is short-lived. The physical demands of basic training leave her legs in constant pain. Doctors discover the cause a previously undiagnosed spinal condition, aggravated by the intense exertion of boot camp. After only a few weeks in the Army, Katie is given a medical discharge. 
When Katie found out that she was going to get a medical discharge, she was devastated because she was just so, it's like she was a failure. She thought she was a failure. I kept having to tell her, you are not a failure. That's something you couldn't help. There's nothing you can do about it. And we're proud of you for trying. But she was, she was really upset when she got discharged. Patricia requests Katie call her once she knows the day she'll be released from training. She wants to pick Katie up and hopes to convince her daughter to move back home. But Patricia never gets the opportunity. We were sitting there, I think, just sitting around the table eating, and her and John just walked in the door, and she's like, I'm back. I was disappointed because she called him, and with me basically being her next to Ken, I always thought I would have to go pick her up, but Katie let John come pick her up. Katie reveals that John purchased a four-bedroom home for them in the nearby town of Fountain Inn. Several weeks later, on December 7th, Patricia receives another unexpected announcement. All of a sudden, she texted me and said, by the way, me and John got married today. I just kind of stared at the text, and and I texted her back. I said, I wasn't invited, you know, joking, because I thought she was kidding. And she says, no, we just went to the Justice of Peace and did it. Getting that from a text was kind of cold, but I guess she knew we didn't want her to marry him anyway. So the best way to do is just tell me in a text. Patricia is crushed. All she can think to reply is that getting married on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor seems like a bad omen. Almost immediately, there are signs she might be right. When she moved in with him in the apartment, she really didn't take anything but her clothes and stuff because John already had his furniture. When they moved into the house, she wanted to get more of her stuff. So he brought it like a U-Haul truck and they backed in the driveway. And when they opened the back, there was already furniture and stuff in there. I'm like, well, whose stuff is that? And they said, well, some of it's John's, but the rest is Cheyenne's. Cheyenne's moving in with us. I'm like, but you just got married. Don't y'all want to just have time to yourselves for now? And Katie looked at me. She says, I do, but John doesn't. He wants Cheyenne to move in with us. I was 17 and I had personal issues at home that made me want to leave. And John told me I just had to work and stay in school and that I could come live with them. And it seemed like the perfect opportunity to live with people who understood me. Katie was not thrilled about the fact that I was starting to rebel as a teenager. She felt like she would be responsible if I didn't finish high school. She went along with it because it's what John wanted to do and it's what I wanted to do. And in the beginning, it was really fun. I mean, we did a lot of house decorating. We would drink and smoke and hang out. But the more we drink and smoke, the less Katie was happy. Before long, Cheyenne's high school friends are attending the hangouts, too. John invites students he's met through his job as a recruiter. The house becomes notorious in the neighborhood for wild parties, fueled by the alcohol and drugs John buys for his teenage guests. We would trip acid or trip shrooms, smoke weed, get drunk, whatever it was that day. And eventually, Katie just stopped being a part of it. And it would be everybody else but Katie. She was so mad at him, and she wanted him to admit that he was wrong and stop doing the things he was doing. And so it would irritate her, and then he would just laugh about it, like, because he knew that would piss her off more. Katie didn't like the parties at all. She had asked John to stop doing this. It was wrong. It was illegal, whatever. But John had threatened her to shut up and mind her own business, and he was going to do what he wanted. And I think she still loved John. Katie still loved him. And she 
like most people, you know, think, oh, well, I can change him and make him better. And Katie couldn't change John. Nobody can change John. Less than three months in, John and Katie's marriage is deteriorating quickly. Her parents suspect John may be abusive, and although he denies it, Katie believes John is developing a relationship with a young girl named Hannah Thompson. Hannah, who was also a girl that was friends with Cheyenne and Katie, she was like some of these other kids from school that John had recruited to come for parties, and she would hang around a lot. I guess he might have showed her some special attention because I think they were seeing each other behind Katie's back. And I think at one time, Katie had walked in on Hannah and John and caught them together. One night in February of 2016, Hannah's parents find out she is at John's house, drinking and doing drugs with other teenagers. Her father immediately files a complaint with the Fountain Inn Police Department, and they send a patrol car to investigate. Cheyenne is there when the officers arrive. That night, Katie wasn't home. I believe she was at work or something. And me and some friends were tripping acid with John. So the police came and knocked on the door. And they said they wanted to talk to Hannah. And John said, well, we don't have to open the door because we're doing nothing wrong. And he told us not to open the doors. So we were in there and we were just, I mean, literally just in there with the lights off, just freaking out. Without a warrant, police are unable to enter the house. They track down Katie and ask her to come to the police station. During questioning, she verifies that John has been providing drugs and alcohol to minors. She also tells them about a disturbing incident of domestic violence. Katie let him know that John had threatened her and put a gun to her head and threatened to kill her. And then when she just stood there, you know, and wasn't going to back down from it, then he put it to his head and said, well, I'll just kill myself. And she still didn't back down. So then he says, well, I'll just go out and kill everybody you love. Katie's information is more than enough for police to get a warrant. John is locked inside a house full of children and police now fear he could be armed. They treat the scene like a hostage situation. The street was lined with cops. They had lights on the house. I saw them with their guns walking around outside and John just said that we weren't doing anything wrong and that if we went out there, they could take us. It just got more intense as the night went on. We called family members from the inside and we're just like freaking out and what should we do because John's telling us to do one thing, but it feels like we should do another and our family's telling us just to calm down and go outside. So at one point, Hannah Thompson called her aunt and her aunt told us if we go outside, everything would be over. And so Hannah and I walked out the door and as soon as we did, we were put in cop cars and they put red dots on John and put him on the ground and arrested him. John is taken to the Fountain Inn Police Department. He is booked on charges of domestic violence and contributing to the delinquency of minors. Katie returns to John's house with her mother. I remember when we walked in, there were four or five kids still in the house. So she looked every one of them in the eye and she said, I want every one of you out of this house. And they all left. And she just kind of sat down like, she was lost. She didn't know what to do. John had done what he did. And it was finally out in the open to everybody. It's like she apologized to me, I think. And I'm like, you've got nothing to be sorry for. This has nothing to do with you. This is John. John is soon released and moves back to the house in Fountain Inn while he awaits trial. 
Katie takes her things and goes to live with her mother and stepfather in Simpsonville. She slowly begins the process of building a new life for herself, a life without John Blauvelt. I know Katie was done with John, but she didn't file for divorce at first. She was just trying, I guess, to get her life straightened back out again. Katie worked at PetSmart, which was her dream job because she was around dogs all day long. That was her therapy. That was the best thing that could have happened to her was that. So she was really looking forward to going to school and getting her certificate so she could become a dog groomer. And it's like a light switch went off and she started being happier. So she was just trying to move on with her life. It's October 24th, 2016, and nine months have passed since John's arrest. Katie is now 22 years old and happy with the new direction her life is taking. She's reconnected with her family and friends, enrolled in classes at a local technical college, and begun the process of finding a divorce lawyer. As she is leaving work, Katie answers a phone call from Cheyenne. It's the last time Katie will speak to anyone in her family. I called her to see if she wanted to hang out. On the phone, she sounded real weird and unsure, which at the time I didn't think anything of. And I laid down to take a nap after I got off the phone with her. And when I woke up, she had never called me back and her phone was dead and nobody had heard from her. But at first, nothing was thought of it. It was around 4.30, Brandy called me and said, have you seen Katie? And I said, no, I just got home, but I haven't seen her. Why? She said, well, she was supposed to meet up with Cheyenne and she never showed up. And I said, well, you know how Katie is. Maybe she decided to go to a movie or, you know, go to her brother's. She said, no, we called his house. He hasn't seen her. So I, you know, tried texting her and I tried calling her. Of course, it went straight to voicemail. Me and my husband kind of, you know, jumped in the car and drove around to a few of the restaurants we knew she liked. The movie theater didn't see her car there. We even rode down past John's. I thought, what if she's meeting John? So we rode down past John's, but she wasn't there either. So we came back home and said, well, you know, she'll probably just, you know, have friends or whatever, and, you know, she'll come in late. We'll see. And so I got up the next morning, and first thing I did was jump up and run and look in her bedroom as soon as she was there. Hadn't been slept in, looked outside, car still not there. And so I told my husband, I said, I'm, I'm going down to the police station to fill out a missing person's report. My husband and me and my stepdaughter all went down there and filled out a report and explained to them her and John had had problems. And, you know, we, we don't know what's going on. This is just not like her. Katie's family spends the rest of the day trying to locate her. They contact her friends and ask them to join in the search, but there are no leads. Katie has disappeared without a trace. We was constantly calling her friends and asking them to help. But, you know, everybody was looking and nobody knew anything. So we went back home. We went to bed. And then around 2 or 2.30 in the morning, Brandy called me again. And she was crying. She says, Mom, the cops are at this place. And I, I think they might have found something. So that's kind of how I found out she was dead. Police say they have located the car. 22-year-old Catherine Boiter of Blavelt was driving Monday when she left work. She was from Fountain Inn, found dead in an abandoned and run-down house early this morning. Friends found her body in an abandoned house in Simpsonville, stabbed to death under a pile of lumber. My name is Jim Donnelly. I'm one of the investigators here at Simpsonville Police Department. I was the initial investigator that responded to the incident. Just after midnight on October 26th, 
Simpsonville police receive a call from two of Katie's friends. They've been out searching for her and have made a disturbing discovery. They decided to check this abandoned house that's on the south end of town. That was a frequent hangout place because it was kind of off the road in the woods, secluded. And when they went downstairs to the root cellar, that's when they discovered Katie's body. Hey, Unsolved Mysteries listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. There's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for family members, and sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with Gift Mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for my fitness fanatic sister. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Shopping can be a lot of fun, right? But you know what else is fun? Saving money. And Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop. Get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every single category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, travel, dining, and so much more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Shop brands like Macy's, Blue Mercury, Petco, Nike, Urban Outfitters, Neiman Marcus, and so much more. Here's how it works. The stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via check or PayPal quarterly. Maximize your savings by stacking cash back on top of other deals like store sales and coupons. Rakuten has 17 million members who are already saving. Why not join them? Membership is free and it's easy to sign up. Cashback rates change daily. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app and start saving today. Your cashback really adds up with Rakuten. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Who had killed Katie? And what was she doing in this abandoned house? Evidence found at the scene leads investigators to believe she did not go there on her own. Based on the initial scene investigation, we didn't think the murder occurred there. There was some blood on some of the shrubbery outside. We had a cadaver dog walk the property line and found a button from one of her jeans. So we know she was moved to the house. John became a suspect almost immediately with these kinds of incidents. You obviously start with the people that found her and work your way back. And I think having the missing persons report on file pointed us to him quickly. Investigators interviewed John later that day. Nothing found at the house implicates him in Katie's murder, but there are reasons to believe he may have been involved. Talking to John during his interview, he made it clear that they were involved in a domestic situation and that his job was on the line of the outcome of this trial that was getting ready to come to fruition. John did give an alibi of being home, but we were never able to pinpoint that alibi. He never asked how she was killed or if we knew who killed her or anything like that, which is kind of uncommon. 
Could John have murdered Katie? Patricia Piver has plenty of reasons to think so. He had recently been showing up unannounced at Katie's job, demanding to speak with her, and Katie had recently contacted the Army to request a part of John's pay be sent to her as spousal support. Eventually, she got that portion that John was supposed to be getting for being married to her. And I think that really made John mad because that was taking his money away, even though it was for her to start with. I had no question in my mind he did it. He blamed Katie for everything. She ruined his military career because she had those domestic charges against him. She spoke up against him when he had the kids there, the drugs and alcohol. That's another hit against his military career. He figures, I guess, if Katie was gone, you know, the, the charges would go away. Lacking the hard evidence needed to charge John with Katie's murder, investigators dig deeper. They subpoena his cell phone records and trace Katie's movements on the day she went missing using evidence found in her car. The insurance companies give you a thing that plugs into your car. It gives you basic information like speeds, distances, braking. So we were able to look back at it and kind of build a timeline and kind of know dates and times of when certain things occurred. We were also able to determine some information from cell phones as to who was around the car at the time. Over the next few weeks, the police continue to gather more evidence in Katie's murder, and all the clues keep leading them back to John Blauvelt. After the second interview with John, when we obtained his car and his DNA samples, I think he knew at that point he was suspect number one. We hadn't signed the warrants, and then when we were able to get the warrants after the interview, he had already disappeared. We invoked the assistance of the U.S. Marshal Service and that's where the hunt started. Several days before authorities can obtain an arrest warrant, John packs his truck and flees the state. And he's not alone. Hannah Thompson's mother reported her missing yesterday to the Fountain Inn Police Department. Hannah's mother told police that her daughter is believed to be with John Blofeld, the known homicide suspect. He worked as an Army recruiter and is now considered AWOL. We're dealing with a very unstable individual, and we're dealing with a 17-year-old that doesn't quite know what she's into. The Marshal Service became involved with the case shortly after the arrest warrant was issued for John Blavelt on November 18th of 2016. Robert Markham is a senior investigator with the U.S. Marshal Service. He had at least a one-week head start from the time that the authorities could detain him legally, and that's just a big challenge in itself. We were also told that he had ran off with the 17-year-old female acquaintance named Hannah Thompson. We had concern about her safety at the time due to what he was accused of doing just a few weeks prior and her age. So we were focusing on locating her safely it was the same investigation, but there were two components there that we were looking at. Was Hannah in danger of becoming John's next victim? The possibility creates a sense of urgency for authorities as they track the couple's path west from South Carolina. They purchase camping equipment from a store in Alabama. They're spotted in Texas and New Mexico near the Mexican border. A license plate reader catches John's GMC Yukon heading north through California, and it's eventually found abandoned in a forest. 
It takes nearly a month on their trail before investigators finally catch a break. We were notified on December 12th of 2016 that Hannah Thompson had reached out to family in the area of Eugene, Oregon. She was by herself and she needed help. And it's my understanding that John Bovelt had more or less abandoned her. We were able to interview Hannah when she came back from Oregon. She was nervous about coming to speak with us. And during that time, John had kind of alluded to her that he did kill Katie. And she kind of got a fear in her head that she might be next. She was cooperative, but very scared. The last confirmed sighting of John Blauvelt was on December 12, 2016. The same day that he abandoned Hannah, he was captured on surveillance video at a Walmart in Eugene, Oregon. He has evaded the authorities ever since. The search is very much concentrated around Oregon, Washington, and Northern California. That's where the majority of our tips have come in. That's where we last know where he was at. The amount of time that's passed is quite a bit. For him to have completely relocated to the other side of the world is possible. But I think the most simple explanation in a case like this is you look to where the person was last known to have been located. I think the most likely scenario is that he's living in an area where he doesn't have to interact with a lot of people, but I don't think he's a survivalist. He's not the type of guy that's just going to completely fall off the grid. There's definitely a, a need on his part to get acceptance from others. I think there's a potential that somebody's out there who is helping him and they're not aware of the criminal charges. There's going to be gaps in their knowledge about his history because he's going to want to have isolated his previous life from the way he's living now. And the more interactions he has with people from his past, the greater likelihood that he's going to be caught. I think there's definitely people that if they see pictures of him, they listen to this podcast, they're going to realize that this is the same person they've known for a year, two years during this time. I think there's a great deal of danger surrounding a person like this. And anybody that's done this once is very capable of doing it again. His intelligence, his motivation, and just his ability to blend in to wherever he's at now, there is absolutely a public safety risk wherever this individual is at. The challenging part of this case, I think, is, is really just trying to find John, trying to run down every little lead that we get. We work really hard at wanting to get closure for the family, to bring him to justice. We're a small town, so, you know, you run into people every day that are family and friends. And, and when they ask, you know, where are we at? What are we doing? What's going on? You know, and it's, it's you want to give them answers, but uh, unfortunately, it's, it's hard sometimes. The important part is to keep it fresh in everybody's minds and keep the search going and not give up hope. Eventually, he's going to slip up. Eventually, he's going to be seen, caught. I just don't see how somebody can just disappear. I just hope he's not out there hurting anybody else or hurting anybody else's family the way he did mine. He's sadistic and narcissistic and... I think he gets a high off the fact that he knows that 
people are looking for him and that they can't find him. Wherever he is, he, he enjoys that. Where is John Blauvelt? And will he ever be held accountable for Katie's murder? Those questions continue to haunt her family to this day. The lack of closure is a dark cloud hanging over their memories of Katie, making her loss all the more painful. I have posts on Facebook from where she said things like, I don't want to go before you and leave you alone in the world. But I also don't want you to go before me and I have to live the rest of my life without you. And I never really thought about those things too much. I loved her for the things she said, but I never really thought that I would actually have to live without her. I've had kids and I know that she would love my kids. So that's really hard for me knowing that she would be 27 years old this summer and she could have had kids. She could have fell in love with somebody who really loved her back. It's hard living life without her and knowing that I'll never get that back. It's hard knowing that she didn't get a chance to really enjoy her life before it was gone. I know there's somebody out there who's seen him. They may not have known who he was at the time. Or they think, oh, he's, he's different. He couldn't have been this awful murderer, but he is. He needs to be in jail. So I'm going to be sharing this until they catch him. And maybe the right people will finally see it and say, hey, I know that guy. He works down the road or he hangs out with his friend and, and turn him in, help him get caught. Because that's all we want is for John to be in jail where he belongs and to face justice for what he did to Katie. John Tufton Blauvelt is a 33-year-old Caucasian male with brown hair and brown eyes. He's approximately 5 feet 8 inches tall and at the time of his disappearance weighed 185 pounds. He has four known tattoos, a pirate and banner with a rose and sunset on his right arm, a yin-yang symbol on his left forearm, the name Madison on his left wrist, and a parrot on the right side of his chest. Authorities believe Blauvelt could be living somewhere in the Pacific Northwest and could be using an alias. He should be considered armed and extremely dangerous. If you have any information on the whereabouts of John Blauvelt, please contact the U.S. Marshal Service at 202 307-9100, online at usmarshals.gov tips, or visit our website at unsolved.com. Next on Unsolved Mysteries. He said, did you tell Rob anything or give him access to anything of yours? And I said, no. He said, he just asked about a ramp that Joffrey's telling him that was made for him. So that just really like sealed it for us. It's like, wow, there is something to this because there's no way Rob would even know about that. Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Muir Productions and Cadence 13. It is executive produced by Terry Dunmuir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Christine Lenick, Courtney Ennis, Paige Heimson, and Paul Yates. The story producer for this episode was Ann Toller, and it was edited by Keith Shea. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil, Andy Jaskowitz, and Bill Schultz. Production support by Sean Cherry and Ian Mont. Artwork and design is by Kirk Courtney. 
Publicity by Josephina Francis and Hilary Schuff. The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. Thanks for listening to episode 35 of Unsolved Mysteries. Update. John Blauvelt is in custody. In early 2022, the U.S. Marshals dedicated a cold and complex case investigative team to search for 33-year-old John Blauvelt. This team was able to locate the fugitive in Medford, Oregon, where he was using the alias Ben Klein. Blauvelt was arrested without incident and will be extradited to South Carolina to face charges for the murder of Katie Boyder Blauvelt and possession of a weapon during a violent crime.